Hi, I'm Chanel. I'm Anne-Marie. And we're the girls of Sweet 15. Yes, um, and so not many people know this, but Chanel and I actually met on a Hillel trip for non-Jewish Baruch student leaders to Israel in 2017. It was a super transformative and confusing experience for us. It resulted in us having many questions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One of the groups that we met on our trip was Roots, a grassroots movement of understanding, nonviolence, and transformation amongst both Israeli and Palestinians. So when the 2023 Israel-Hamas war broke out in October, we knew that we wanted to start an open dialogue about the history of the region and what people abroad can do to stay informed. Thus, today, we are joined by Rabbi Hanan Schlinger and Nora Wad in Suite 15. Would you guys mind just giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourselves? My name is Noor, and I am. Uh, I have been at Roots now for the last seven years. I uh, live in Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, and I work actually as a tour guide. And uh, that's how I find my found my way up a, about for Roots actually. And uh, since then, I have been uh, active uh, at Roots and uh, a, a number of different uh, joint uh, organizations and initiatives between Israelis and Palestinians. And my name is Hanan Schlesinger. I'm a rabbi. I'm uh, an older guy. Uh, my career is basically behind me. I've been a rabbi and a teacher for over 35 years. Mm -hmm. And about 10 years ago, I was one of the founders of Roots, where the Israeli-Palestinian grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. And I spend all my days and all my nights uh, working with Roots. Okay, thank you. Um, and you gave us a little bit of like the beginning of Roots. Um, but how did it kind of start? Like, how did you get um two different types of people to come together for this initiative? Well, believe it or not, although we Israelis and Palestinians should be given much of the credit for coming together, we have to give some of the credit to an outside force. Actually, believe it or not. The catalyst for Roots was a Protestant evangelical pastor from Reston, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And about the year 2012, he decided, he took upon himself, uh, in Christian terms, he was called by God, by God, to devote himself to creating some type of reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians. And he decided to take upon himself a Christian ministry in which twice a year, 2012, twice a year, 2013, twice a year, he traveled from the U.S. to Israel-Palestine. And he began to meet people, Israelis and Palestinians, who lived in the same geographical area south of Jerusalem and introduced them to each other. <clears throat> get to know them, get to know them deeply. Uh, he met Palestinians from the city of Bethlehem and from other areas in that area of the Palestinian territories. And he also met Israelis living in that area. Uh, Israeli Jews call the area Judea and Samaria. Uh, the specific area of Judea and Samaria that he went to, that Pastor John Moyle went to, was uh, what we call Gush Etzion. And after he had four trips to the, uh, to the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, at the beginning of 2014, on his fifth trip, he decided he had met enough people to introduce them all to each other. And he wanted to put together a gathering of all the people. Uh, he, on the Palestinian side, his main partner was Ali Abu Awad. 
And on the Israeli side, his main partner was Shaul Judelman and some other Israelis. I won't mention all the names. Uh, and he brought them all together. And I happened to be there. I'd never met the pastor before. I'd never met a Palestinian before. I just got in at the last minute and it changed my life. Oh, wow. That's pretty incredible. That's something I did not know at all. <laughs> and so what is the mission of Roots? And do you think that you can achieve it? So I think I can say that uh, our mission is actually to bring as many Israelis and Palestinians, local people actually, to uh, get to meet one another, to listen to the different uh, uh, narrative from the other side, to start to understand that there is a truth on both sides, on both on both identities, on both uh, the Israeli and the Palestinian side, and to take this understanding and, in a way, uh, change the, the way how they see their identity and the way how they see the other side. Um, in our conf conflict, unfortunately, there is a lot of uh, uh, there is a lot of denial between both sides, um, and the identities and the narrative seems like they are contradicting each uh, each other. And um, Roots is aiming to basically not build one narrative, but rather to actually create a space where the both sides can actually maintain their identities, their narrative, but in a way that still recognizes and sees the other side and acknowledge the other side. And uh, we hope that when we create a mass number of people who actually uh, go through such a transformation, it will be, uh, then we will be able, we'll be able to, to reach for a, a sustainable peace. So to make a long story short, Israelis and Palestinians live in the West Bank what is it? I call Judean Samaria in two parallel universes with no connection between us. Transportation is separate, health systems are separate, education is separate, commerce is separate. We live in different towns and villages, we speak different languages, no interaction. So we have ignorance of the other side, and we have suspicion, we have fear, we have hostility, because we have racism and uh, and bias. Roots created, in that context, the only joint space between the two sides. Our Dignity Center is a community center. The only joint Israeli-Palestinian community center in the whole West Bank, Judean Samaria. And there, until October 7th, we had activities like photography workshops and music therapy and playback and, and storytelling and interfaith dialogue and religious celebrations and political discussions, learning the other's language, culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The two sides got to know each other a little bit, got to know the humanity of the side and got to dig deeper into the identity of the other side. No, because I also seen that, like you said, you have like the summer camps for the kids. And I also seen there was like the, the marathons that you were holding. Um, so how do you actually get people from the different parts to come together, especially when they don't speak the same language and where it could be like out of the way or new territory for someone? So it's it really, as we said earlier, it's going against the grain for both societies. Mm -hmm. Some people come out of curiosity. Some people come, they don't want to live in hate of the other side, they tell us. Uh, some parents come after they sent their kids to the summer camp and saw how wonderful it was. There are people who come. They're not willing to meet the other side. Let's say Israelis not willing to meet Palestinians, but they're willing to meet Muslims. Again, it's the same thing. 
but you phrase it in a religious context that takes the political thorn out of it. So there's a lot of uh, Jews who come to our religious events to talk to Muslims, to meet Muslims. But in general, it's hard to get people to come. It's not these also, Sometimes there are some people who are like, in a way, self-motivated because they feel like by coming and meeting the other side, they would be maybe challenging themselves, and they have made the the, the, the choice to do to do that. And so there is there are people like this, and I I'm sure that this is something I felt after going to Roots for the first time and the second time, and I start to go after that. That um, the more you go and the more you get involved, you you actually start to feel liberated in some sense liberated from this ignorance from the prejudices that you have from uh from uh from ignorance and from maybe also even hatred and uh and all of these things that you didn't think about but when you start to meet people and you start as as i'm like using the words of rabbi Han, you start to go through this healing process mm -hmm. it does actually attract people to go more and more and actually combine this with curiosity people are curious and as long as they feel safe uh, to a certain degree, to a certain level, they will, uh, they will, they will come. And was there any backlash when you created Roots, or was this kind of an idea that was really welcomed in the communities that you're in? No backlash at all. Everyone loved it. <laughs> that would be nice. So you're hinting to the fact that in the environment in which we live, both the Israelis and Palestinians, to accept the other side, that the other side has complete humanity, that the other side is connected to the land, that the other side has a legitimacy, eh, that goes against the grain of what both Israelis and Palestinians are thinking and feeling and experiencing. So indeed, the message of uh, Roots is revolutionary in our environment. It's countercultural, and we find a lot of opposition on, on both sides, Israeli and Palestinian. Yeah, I, I would say also that one of the unique things about Roots is that it, uh, it, it created a space of dialogue and, uh, and understanding among Palestinians and Israeli settlers in the West Bank, in some parts of the, of the West Bank. And that is considered to be uh, very new when Roots started because most of the organizations in the last, in general, in the last 30 years since the Oslo peace process started, um, the, the, the communities in the West Bank, such as the settlers, were not really part of the uh, peace dialogue. And um, they were seen as the obstacle, and uh, they were mostly dealt with, uh, basically, they were uh, ignored. Uh, also, religious people, um, um, I, I can say that religious people also felt that the Oslo peace process did not really talk to them, did not really respect uh, their... Um, their beliefs and their uh, the way how they relate to the Holy Land, so um, that makes uh, roots focusing on on these uh, on on, uh, on these groups makes it uh, unique and actually doing something that um, peace organizations did not do before. Yeah. yeah, the fact that roots focuses on religious people from traditional uh, groups is really unique. Most peace organizations focus on secular people. Mm. And the truth is that makes perfect sense, at least in our context, because where we come from, both on the Israeli Jewish side and on the Palestinian Muslim side, the more religious you are, the more traditional you are, the more you, to use the word that 
nor use deny the other side. The more you feel that the truth is only with you and the other side is illegitimate and doesn't belong here. So Roots has said that uh, it's true that religion is part of the problem. Yes, it's true. We're not denying that. So let's make it part of the solution. Let's bring the religious people into the dialogue and let's uh, focus very often on religious themes in our dialogue. Let's see the depth and the fullness of the political, national, religious identity on our side and on the other side. And let's see if we can uh, find an opening that will allow religion to be part of the solution. Actually, let me tell you a story. Can I tell you a story about uh, this thing you asked how we've been received? Mm -hmm. So this past summer, like four months ago, we had our, I think, ninth annual summer camp for 80 kids, half Israeli, half Palestinian elementary school kids. And I publicized it on the email list in the settlement in the town in which I live. The town I live is called Alone Shoot. And uh, some kids, some families joined. But on the email list, there was a discussion. And the discussion was that many people wrote, in the end it was eight or nine people wrote, that Hanan is crazy. Uh, what is he doing, inviting our kids to meet Palestinian kids? They'll become friends and they'll marry each other. That's the worst thing in the world. Uh, we'll find that the Palestinian young men are taking Jewish girls and they're marrying them and bring them into the neighboring village where we know they'll be beaten and tortured by their husbands. Life will be terrible for them. They'll be captured and then we'll have to send uh, forces into the village and save them from there. So what is Haran doing? This is a terrible, terrible thing. This summer camp for five-year-old and seven-year-old kids. I read what they were writing and I didn't respond. And then the next day I got a phone call from the rabbi of our town, who's a man I greatly respect. And in our circumstances, the rabbi is greatly respected by everyone. And he gets involved in a lot of social issues between the inhabitants. So he said that he was uh, he was called by a number of inhabitants, uh, citizens of Alonjfut, again, the town where I live. And they said they have great concern about the summer camp. Uh, the people asked him to investigate. So he said, why don't you come over to my house tomorrow and we'll talk about it. So I said, I, I have a better idea. Instead of me coming to your house, uh, I'll invite you to my house. When I said my house, I meant the root summer camp where we have our, it's like my second home. He said, okay, I'll come. So the next morning I picked him up <clears throat> in my car. We got there. It's a five minute drive from where we live. And uh, he saw 80 kids having fun. Israeli and Palestinian talking, you know, not talking to each other. They can't talk. They don't have, they have different languages, but playing together, having fun together and laughing together. I introduced him to some of the counselors, uh, three or four Palestinian counselors. He talked to them in English. He heard how they got to roots and what it's meant in their lives and how much they love the summer camp. He talked to a few of the kids. And then I introduced him to the two co-leaders of roots, the Israeli leader Shaul Yudelman and the Palestinian leader Khaled Abu Awad. He sat with me and the two co-leaders for about an hour. He asked many, many questions. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, that's it, I'm on your side. This is wonderful. I can't believe that I've 
it's been going on for eight, nine years. I never heard of it. Why did you keep this a secret? We have to tell the whole world. This is exactly what we need for the two sides to meet each other. And he said he's going to bring all the rabbis of the area to our center. And he's going to go back to the people who sent him to investigate and tell them that their, their fears and their apprehensions were totally off base. It's a very good story. And it's all true. But the problem is that the rabbi was never able to do what he said he's going to do. Here's the, uh, the bad part of it. It was at the end of the summer. He went on vacation. Then came the Jewish holidays. And then came October 7th, uh, the last day of the Jewish holidays. The war broke out. And uh, I don't think he's ever going to be able to bring the great news to the community, to the Jewish community, because everyone is just so traumatized and so afraid now and has lost any little bit of trust in the other side. And so... Obviously, the conflict has been ongoing since the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. So what makes this attack on October 7th different? Um, what do you think like, people abroad should know about it? I think you are going to hear different answers from Palestinians and Israelis, even, even afterwards. Um, I think one of the things that made this... Uh, uh, this this conflict since the October uh, since the seventh of October different is that this time actually um, the amount of casualties and the the, the 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 attack on the Israeli side was was maybe bigger and different than uh, than any other time. I mean, we witnessed several wars before between between Hamas and Israel, but not like this one, not uh, that intense. And I think that the attack that Hamas uh, committed on the seventh of October was very uh, surprising and shocking uh, almost for everyone, including for the Palestinian public. Many found it to be actually surprising and, and shocking. So um, that's uh, that that's what uh, that's what's different this time. I, I'd add, and not disagreeing with with Nor at all, that Israelis, despite the conflict have a sense, had a sense until October 7th, a sense of security, a sense of self-sufficiency that we can and do defend ourselves. And Jews may be victims around the world. They may be hopeless around the world. But in the state of Israel, we can defend ourselves. On October 7th, that sense of security of self-sufficiency was utterly, utterly shattered. It's not just that Hamas attacked and we were caught off guard. It's that the Israeli public, through the radio and through television, through newspapers, were exposed to the painful truth that for a full day, Sunday, uh, Saturday, October 7th, there were Jews calling on the phone and on WhatsApp, their relatives and their friends, help, I'm hiding in the middle of the desert at the, the party. I'm hiding in my safe room. I hear Hamas outside trying to break in. I hear Hamas looking for me in the bushes. Come help me. And no one came. What do I mean no one came? There, We weren't prepared. It was a holiday. The army, the forces weren't ready. And we literally heard stories of people 
begging for help for hour upon hour and hour, and then they were slaughtered. And there's a great, great sense in Israel that we, the country, we, the government, we, the army, have let our people down. And we are embarrassed and feel deep, deep shame. We feel so many Jews in Israel feel and experience flashbacks to the Holocaust in which Jews went like sheep to the slaughter. No one came to save us. We thought in the state of Israel we have created a framework that will save us from onslaughts. We may be attacked, but we can always defend ourselves. And it turns out that we were wrong. There's a deep sense that our basic identity and our basic sense of self-sufficiency has been utterly, utterly undone. Actually, I, I can also add, I mean, your question as, as basic uh, and uh, as basic as it sounds, actually, it's very deep at the same time. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, like the conflict had been going on since 1948. What's what's different now? And I, I can really think of so many things like one of it on the Palestinian side is that we feel that um, the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, had been really... Uh, successfully managing the conflict over the last decade, uh, at least, and uh, have convinced, uh, to a large degree, I can say the Israeli public, that, you know, I can uh, make peace with the Arab countries, with the Arab neighbors. There is no partner on the Palestinian side. We offer them peace many times, and they reject it. And um, there are ways, There are we, we find ways to, to manage the conflict. The Palestinian Authority is keeping the situation in the West Bank under control. And yes, there are attacks from like from time to time, but it's not it's still under control. It's not uh, it's not that big and it's not that uh, bad. And with the same thing, actually, the same thing in, in Gaza. I mean, even Hamas is actually um, had like uh, like a, a like a very bad relationship to Israel. I mean, like they have wars, but still, in the last at least in the last couple of years, uh, the Israeli government have managed to convince, I think, the Israeli public that, you know, Hamas is not really interested into having another war and waging another war against Israel. And all of what they are really interested in now is to run Gaza since they are the government there, the de facto government. And uh, they are not really uh, going to take any risk and attack Israel. And um, I don't think that most Palestinians really believe this Israeli also narrative. I mean, I'm, I was one of like really the Palestinians who questioned. We witnessed uh, last year uh, another cycle of violence and it was basically between the Islamic Jihad, which is another movement, another organization in Gaza and Israel in where Hamas did not actually participate. Uh, and the Israeli media have used this as a sign to actually say, that yes, Hamas is the government in Gaza and it's not interested in, to, in, in having wars with Israel, but rather to maintain the situation and to have economic benefits. Uh, but that was all proven wrong on the 7th of October. Um, and I think in a way, that's one of the reasons why it created a big shock for the, for the Israeli community. Yeah, I think it's also very important how you talked about the media and kind of how sometimes politics play a role in how maybe one side will view something compared to another side. 
Um, of course, there's this phrase like fake news. So what kind of ways do you think that the information being shared either on both sides are affecting the views of the people living um, in Israel, living in Palestine? Okay, I'll, I'll say something. <clears throat> One thing I can tell you is that Israelis and Palestinians read and hear different news. I mean, different news about the same situation. <clears throat> In Israel, we hear almost nothing about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. We hear on the news the number of casualties in Gaza, but there's always a caveat that these are the casualty figures put forth by the Gazan Health Ministry, and the Health Ministry is in the hands of Hamas, so you can't believe a word they're saying. And number two, <clears throat> we are only told in the Israeli news the number of casualties, but there's no human face to it. There's no pictures of people dying in Gaza. There's no pictures of arms and limbs flying all over from a bomb dropped by my country's air force. All we see of the human story is the Israeli human story. We see the Israeli human story because it's on the news, the soldier that was killed. And it's also in our lives because just about every family has someone who's been called up. Literally almost every family, right? The Israeli army is based on, it's a people's army. It's based on the reserves. It's not based on a standing army. So everyone knows someone has been called up. Everyone's been to funerals in the past two months. Uh, everyone knows uh, women who are left at home with two or three or four children and their husbands been away for, for a month at the front. So we feel the pain of our side and we know, know nothing of the pain on the Palestinian side. And it could be, uh, I'll leave Nordis, it could be that the Palestinian side is a mirror image of that. Yeah, that's that's very true. Like, uh, for example, um, I, I find myself to be sometimes between both sides, between my society and other society. And I have friends uh, from the Israeli side and I talk to them despite this was like really very difficult uh, time. And the stories that I hear from them from the Israeli side about what happened on the 7th of October, there is no way that uh, most of the Palestinians hear about these things. Now, I'm not saying that everything I hear I, I, I think is, is true, uh, but the, 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 the issue is that the Palestinians only hear about our stories, our atrocities, what happens to us, and in general for us, the Israelis are the victimizer, and it, basically when we think of the Israeli side, we only think of the, of the Israeli military, of what uh, they are doing to us, of the bombs, of, of these things, and we barely think of, uh, most of the Palestinians don't think of the uh, humans uh, on the other side. Um, uh, I think that in, in this war, most Palestinians have seen the Israeli reaction to it, and they have seen this ugly image of, of revenge and uh, bloodshed. Like, like, even if you wanted to have the, uh, even if you wanted as a Palestinian to start to basically, I don't know, to, to, to try to find empathy with the other side, it 
after several days of the war, it became so difficult because the, the, the things that Israel is committing in Gaza and, I, and, and Palestinians, of course, they hear the Israeli uh, side justifications, but we don't buy it. We, we hear it many times before. We don't think it's true. And so, so yeah, it's, it's exactly on the Palestinian side. It's, uh, it's the same. And I wanted to ask a little bit about Hamas. Um, I just want to know how do Palestinian people feel about Hamas and also how does Hamas govern different Palestinian territories? So, I mean, yeah, we can talk a lot about Hamas, but Hamas was uh, Hamas was founded actually in the end of the first Intifada, the end of the, the first Palestinian uprising in the 80s. And unlike most of the Palestinian uh, political organizations back then that they were all under the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, Hamas was actually an Islamist movement. Uh, most of the uh, organizations that were before are a social democratic such as Fatah, and also some of them were even like uh, communist uh, groups that, like the PFLP, for example. And uh, Hamas was founded basically in Israeli jails uh, by uh, prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners, political prisoners, and uh, many of them were part uh, or members of the uh, 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 the Muslim Brotherhood movement in the Arab world. So they were the Hamas was at the beginning the branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine. Now, I'm going to say something here that might sound like a conspiracy theory, but actually it's true. Hamas was founded by Israel, and what I mean by that is that the Israeli Shabak, the Israeli internal intelligence here, they were aware about what these people are and who they are. But the fact that they turned a blind, blind eye on them is because they wanted to create a uh, they wanted to create a political opposition to the PLO. And that was just a few years before the, the Oslo peace agreements were signed. And actually, uh, um, they succeeded. I mean, when the Palestinian Authority was founded and, was, uh, and the elections took place in 1996, Hamas was already an established political organization and movement in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. They worked on a lot of like social, uh, uh, social, uh, 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 social projects, um, schools and, and kindergartens and, and, and clinics and health centers, and uh, they start to spread, you know, uh, their movement and uh, people joined them, and they were in general like the situation in Palestine back then was affected like most of the Arab world with the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran after 1970, 1979, right? So that's how Hamas started to grow. And it played, in my opinion, as Noor, a very negative role in the 90s, because when the PLO decided to go toward peace and start to build or establish a state, they went the other direction. They said, we are not going to give up on armed struggle. Uh, we are not going to give up on resistance. We are not going to recognize the state of Israel, meaning we are not going to give up on 78% of our historic uh, homeland between the sea and the river. And another important thing, that they are representing religious voices, which is, as, as I hinted before, the uh, Oslo peace process did not really speak a lot to the religious people. So that's that's a little bit of history about Hamas. And uh, and basically, after the Second Intifada and after the... Uh, the uh, um, the uh, the failure of the Oslo peace process in the Second Intifada, 
and uh, things got even more complicated. Hamas even got more popularity because they were uh, showing that they are actually, they are the right answer to the occupation. Because as long as there is occupation, we need resistance. And of course, uh, militant resistance is the most effective. Now, uh, I said something that I think that they were negative in the 90s because uh, every action that Hamas did in the 90s, such as the bomb suiciding attacks, actually that began in the 90s and even became more intense in the second intifada in the early 2000s, destroyed the trust completely between the Israelis and the Palestinian side. Um, I think that uh, that's one of the major uh, the major things that uh, the way how they affected the the, the, the situation. Uh, by by 2006, uh, we had the chance to have our second elections. That they were actually we were supposed to have those these elections in, in the year 2000, but we could not because of the second intifada. So Hamas actually surprisingly won. They actually decided to run in the elections, and they uh, managed to actually get 75 seats in the Palestinian Parliament from 120 seats. And the elections took place in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And so that's how Hamas came to power. And they founded the government, which was boycotted by most of the world, uh, including Israel, of course. And that made things very, very complicated uh, until the president decided to uh, dismantle the government. And to make a long story short, they made a coup. And basically, the Palestinian um, political situation became divided between the two major political forces or political parties, Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. Each side is, is claiming or actually accusing the other side of not respecting the uh, result of democratic elections. And the uh, most of the world decided to recognize and continue to work with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank that's led by Fatah, even though there is no, uh, uh, there is no elections since then. Um, I want to also ask about the the agreements that happened between Israel and Palestine. It feels like every few years there's another uprising that happens or another conflict that happens and there'll be an agreement. But then sooner or later, there is uh, like one or the other party breaks this agreement. Um, in your opinion, in your opinion, like why could this be a case and how? I don't know. Of course, you can answer this um, because you can't speak for one party or the other. But how? can you probably see a way forward to us kind of creating agreements that could be lasting? I'll say something <clears throat> that relates to the specific approach of our organization. So my analysis is not a global analysis. I'm just examining one part of things. So one of the reasons why agreements have been signed and broken, haven't been implemented, one of the reasons is because of a lack of trust, that the Israelis don't trust the Palestinians, the Palestinians don't trust the Israelis. And the reason I highlight that is because trust is not just an issue among the politicians, it's an issue among the people. The politicians, my politicians, Israeli politicians, don't trust the Palestinians because all of Israeli society doesn't trust the Palestinians. On the Palestinian side, it may be the same, nor can comment upon that, I'm, I'm not sure. So in Roots, we've said again and again and again, this is one of our major points, is that yes, 
there is a political <clears throat> conflict between Israel and Palestine. Yes, there is occupation, Israeli occupation of the Palestinians. Yes, there is injustice of Israel vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Yes, we need a political settlement, which Palestinians get their own state. Yes to all those things, but it won't happen. There won't be a politically negotiated settlement without trust. And in order to establish trust, you need people-to-people -people work. You need Israelis and Palestinians meeting each other and coming to humanize the other and coming to recognize the other's legitimate identity and connection to the land. You have to feel that they're people, that they're people, and that you can work with them and that we can build some type of relationship that we can turn from enemies into, to a certain degree, partners. Any peace settlement is based on some degree of mutual acceptance, recognition, and trust. So Roots has been working on those grassroots issues for 10 years. And I have to say what's obvious is that the events of October 7th and what's happened since then clearly have set us back decades. So I actually, I want to say that um, when you talk about the Israeli-Palestinian side having an agreement, um, actually the last agreement, the, the last like really big agreement that the Israeli-Palestinian side had was the Oslo Agreement 30 years ago. Since then, we did not, I cannot really say that we have an agreement about, about anything. We had rounds of negotiations. And on the Palestinian side, we think that what happened was that the Israelis actually have no interest in peace and have no interest completely in establishing a Palestinian state and ending the occupation. And as I said before, Benjamin Netanyahu was successfully for the last decade actually managing the conflict and uh, uh, taking any chance to like destroy the hope for a Palestinian state. And, um, and most Palestinians think that on one hand, yes, we cannot trust the, 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 the Israelis, but on the other hand, that the Israelis are never be never never are held accountable right and there's here an issue when it comes to having an agreement because there is always a mediator and for the last 30 years the us had been the uh, peace uh, mediator between the israeli side and the palestinian side but the type of relationship that uh, that the united states have toward israel versus the palestinian side is completely different and uh, the us would would never uh, in our in the, in the Palestinian point of view, had never actually uh, held Israel accountable and uh, is not really uh, ready to put enough pressure on Israel to make the right the concessions for, uh, for an agreement. So yes, there is an issue that today, Palestinians have no trust in the Israelis. For example, like in this war in Gaza, the Palestinians believe, um, and this, this is something that was repeated by, by, the, by Joe Biden, the American president himself, that the ultimate goal of the war in Gaza is not to destroy Hamas, but rather to force the Palestinian population out to the Sinai Desert to Egypt. And uh, even though uh, it was said at some point that they wanted to send the people there, meaning the Palestinian population, um, because uh, large parts of Gaza or Gaza will become a uh, military zone or a military action uh, area, but no Palestinian believe that if we actually left Palestine, we'll be able to, to go back. And that has to do with the inherited trauma of the, of the catastrophe of 1948. 
Palestinians left and they thought it would be just a matter of a few days or weeks. And after 75 years, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they were not allowed to come back. So yes, there is no trust. And uh, in our grassroots work, we work in one of the things we work on is like to create the trust between the people. But at the end, I must say that I don't think that we are going to create a trust between every Palestinian and every, and every Israeli. I think that's impossible. But we do need uh, uh, we do we do need a level of trust between both parties on the on the ground level and on the political level in order to uh, to to, uh, to make an agreement. I want to push back on something that Noor said. I don't understand. What did you say that uh, the U.S. president agreed? that the Israeli goal of the war is to push the Palestinians, Palestinians out of Gaza? Is that what you said? So the American president actually have talked to the Egyptian president in order to convince him to receive uh, people from Gaza, um, which actually confirmed the Palestinian uh, accusations to Israel that the, the goal of Israel for the Gazans or for the people of Gaza is to uh, to take the, the people of Gaza out from uh, from Gaza and send them to, to to Egypt, and this is not a new idea. This is not something that's uh, that's totally new. It was always, I mean, on the strategic level, uh, it was always a problem. Gaza is uh, actually not that big area. It's a it's a strip by the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's about if I'm not mistaken, it's 120 squared miles, about uh, 360 squared kilometers. It's, dub it's double the size of Washington, D.C., with over 2 million people living there. So it's one of the most dense populated areas in the world. 80% of the population of Gaza are refugees and uh, their descendants, the second and third generation. They actually come from uh, the area um, that's now Israel, the state of Israel, mostly from Jaffa, from around Jaffa, the villages that were, they were there before 1948, from Ashdod, from Asqalan, or as we call it in the Palestinian name, Al-Majdal, from those cities, and many many villages to the north and to the northeast uh, of the Gaza Strip. Um, and the idea of uh, pushing Gazans, so Gaza is like, in the Palestinian perspective, is this large refugee camp, basically. Uh, so the idea of pushing Gazans outside of the borders of historic Palestine had been always there and had been always one of their major Palestinian fears. And I remember that, you know, in, on the 7th of October, on the, at night, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu came out to address the, the Israeli public and he actually, uh, made his threats to Hamas, and he said, "I advise the Palestinians to leave." And 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 I was like, "Where where they should go? Where they should leave?" Because everyone knows that for the last sixteen years, Gaza is like this open air prison that is really under this blockade and siege. No one can go in or go out easily. Uh, Gaza is like two hours away from me here in Bethlehem, but I never ever had the chance to go there and I never even think that in the future I have the chance to, to visit Gaza because of how separated we are and uh, it was repeated again uh, that the Gazans should leave but it wasn't wasn't clear until until there was a talk about it uh, yes and, and and the American president Joe Biden he said that he was trying to, conv to convince uh, he was trying to convince the Egyptian president 
to uh, allow the people of Gaza to uh, to come to to or to go to Egypt, which is something that Palestinians basically refuse for the reasons I said before. And so you mentioned there's a lot of distrust on both sides. Um, obviously, everybody's experienced a tragedy, whether you're Israeli or Palestinian. So how do you feel like how can people actually sit down and, and find that motivation to talk with one another? How do you think people can put aside their bias to have an open discussion with somebody who's on the other side? Well, when you ask about motivation, their motivation is could be on the rational level and motivation could be on the emotional level. That's in general. So it looks like presently among most Israelis, the vast majority of them, and even peace activists, certainly the majority of peace activists within roots on the Israeli side, people now don't have the motivation to sit down with the other side. And when I say they don't have their motivation, I mean on the emotional level. I mean that people are just traumatized and shocked and horrified and they've, they've lost the foundation of their sense of, of self. I meant I used the word shame earlier, that many Israelis fear feel shame. And when you're ashamed in the face of the other, you usually don't want to see them. I'm not justifying this. I'm not uh, I'm just trying to explain it. In addition to the the trauma and the shame, Israelis, even peace activists today, don't want to meet Palestinians because they're afraid. They're afraid that people they've been meeting for the year, last year or two or three are going to stab them in the back. And again, I'm not justifying that feeling. I'm not, uh, I'm just explaining. I'm just explaining that's what people are feeling. That's on the emotional level. But on the rational level, I hope, I think that Israelis, certainly people who have been peace activists, understand that eventually we have to sit down and talk to the other side. <laughs> if we don't do that, we will end up killing each other for another decade or five decades or century or centuries. Because although many Israelis and many Palestinians outside of the peace camp are convinced that one day the other side is just going to leave the land. The other side doesn't belong here. It's ours and not theirs. They'll get the message and leave. But anyone who's met the other side in roots or in other organizations has learned that that's not going to happen because the other side is a deep sense that they belong in this land just as we do. They're not going anywhere. No one's going anywhere. Uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians are destined to live in the same land for a long time. The question is, at war and peace. So if you know that, that the other side is staying here because they belong here. Obviously, we don't want to continue living in war. So eventually, we have to talk to them. And we have to come to a certain understanding that's only going to happen through face-to-face -face meetings, developing recognition and trust, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so how do we get people to the point which they're willing to talk to the other side? I actually think that's uh, the multi-million dollar question now. How do we get... It, the, the question existed before October 7th, and now it exists even, even more deeper. Part of the answer... And again, this is really hard. I don't have the answer. Part of the answer is trauma therapy. Trauma therapy that begins 
with Israelis alone and Palestinians alone and is geared to creating joint trauma therapy in which we can have sessions after the separate sessions, separate sessions together of Israelis and Palestinians together. I don't have the answers. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to try to bring the people to talk to each other now. Uh, I agree with Rabbi Hanan. Um, yet, I think as as activists uh, in this field, we, I mean, I feel like I have responsibility. I can't, I can't just like give up on on, on it. And uh, I don't think that I have the answer, but I tried. I'm I'm still trying. Uh, I thought at the beginning that, for example, we might, as Roots, issue a joint statement that shows that we stand together as partners against this violence, against the uh, violence on both sides, against these atrocities that they are being committed, and to show to the people uh, in our community where we are standing and that we have partners on either side. It was not that easy to come up with a joint statement uh, and to write it. Uh, some other groups actually have, and I think it was I think it was needed and it was powerful. Uh, it gave some hope, um, even for me, to actually read uh, a statement from other groups uh, in the field. Um, and then I think that I thought that we can actually have uh, maybe after the emotions uh, go down, we can have actually some time and we can have like a rational discussion about what's happening and what's happening when what should what should we do what should we say but um, i think i was too quick because the emotions did not uh, come down very quickly on, on both sides on the israeli side even after a week or two weeks of the 7th of october people are still hearing about the stories uh, about what happened and also thinking about the kidnapped, the people who are in captivity in Gaza and the stories of their family or their families. On the Palestinian side, we see the massacres that's happening in Gaza. And we are also, our emotions are getting, we are getting very angry. Um, so yeah, it became more and more difficult. Um, one of the things that I found myself doing in the last couple of weeks is actually meeting with other Palestinians who are involved in this work. And first of all, we started by sharing what we are feeling about the situation and, and the challenges that we are facing. And it was very similar, actually. And then we start to basically uh, to do a brainstorming uh, around what can we do and what is possible right now. And many of us came to a conclusion that maybe right now we should be focusing more on, a, on creating a, a new political horizon. And instead of actually thinking of the people-to-people -people work, which is actually impossible even because I, can't, I cannot leave Bethlehem where I live. I cannot go to the Roots Center. Um, so uh, maybe we can actually think of political ideas. So explain why you can't go. Explain why you can't go. Yeah. So... So since the war began, the Israeli military in the West Bank closed Palestinian cities and villages, and uh, at the beginning it prevented any Palestinian, like Palestinian traffic on, uh, on the main road. And the idea was to separate also between Palestinians and Israeli settlers in order to uh, basically uh, avoid any uh, escalation or any violence that would escalate the situation in the West Bank. But this situation turned into, into a kind of siege 
like the city of Bethlehem, all of the entrances to the city are closed. And uh, there is only uh, two uh, roads are left open today in Bethlehem, one in the direction of the south. And that's where is the route center today, but there is a military checkpoint you have to pass and they check every car and that creates uh, like traffic. And people are even also afraid to go because they, they hear about stories being attacked by settlers or by soldiers themselves. So most people do not, don't leave Bethlehem unless they have to, like unless there's something that, uh, that is really necessary. Otherwise people do not, uh, do not leave the city. Um, so that's why I can go. So right now, I mean, we, we start to think that maybe we should focus on the political level, not on the grassroots level, but maybe on a political level. But definitely, yes, the answer is it's very difficult to, to try to bring the people to, to talk to each other right now. I want to add something uh, on the Israeli side. There's also talk. I mean, on the Israeli side of roots, there's also talk like Nord just said on the Palestinian side that perhaps people to people work is so difficult. Perhaps, yes, we should focus more on the political level. Uh, but I also did want to add two points about how do we uh, jumpstart or how do we continue the people to people work. One is instead of having groups of Israelis meet groups of Palestinians uh, in public, five Israelis, five Palestinians, or 10 and 10 or 15 and 15, instead of having group events to bring the two sides together, having events in which one Israeli talks to a group of Palestinians or one Palestinian talks to a group of Israelis. And for the speaker, we choose people who know the language to use in order not to trigger the other side. And that's something that most Israelis and most Palestinians don't know. We're, we're afraid that if we go back to people to be people meetings, first of all, no one will come. But if they do come, they'll immediately say something wrong and trigger the other side. And then it'll explode. I don't don't mean explode uh, physically uh, with a bomb. Explode. So that's one idea to have meetings in which one person speaks from one side to the other side to a group of the other side. Another idea is that today Israelis know or think they know that it was a radical religious movement that massacred us on October 7th. Hamas, it was an Islamic movement. And therefore, Islam is the problem. That's what many, many Israelis are feeling. So if Islam is the problem in the eyes of Israelis, then either there's no hope or the hope is in reform of Islam. And by the way, some Israelis realize that part of the problem in this conflict is not just with Islam, it's also with Judaism, that there's elements in Judaism that are fueling this conflict. I say this because we've always found in Roots that interfaith dialogue is a very good means to bring people to meet the other side. Let me explain. When you tell Israelis, come and meet Palestinians, it sounds political and it sounds dangerous. Many won't come. If you say come and meet Muslims, it's easier. Even though it's the same people you're meeting. <clears throat> I don't know if it's, if it's similar on the Palestinian side. So the interfaith dialogue was a lot of activity before October 7th. It drew a lot of people, whether dialogue over texts 
or dialogue talking about customs or just religious celebrations of one side or the other side's holidays. In the present situation, which Israelis are so sure that Islam has been corrupted by Hamas and has to be uh, changed, well, Israelis may be able to understand the interfaith dialogue in which we Jews show a mirror to, uh, to Muslims and they may see how Hamas went wrong in its interpretation of Islam that could be a way to convince or influence Israelis that it's important to meet the other side now because it'll help them to quote-unquote reform their religion and uh, and that's good for everyone. Now, I just want to add that it, I understand that I, I used patronizing language in the last two minutes, but I did on purpose because if patronizing language is will bring people to the table, then I'm willing to use that language. Um, you want to object to something I said? Oh, no, for me. Or actually, no. I said the norm. I, said the norm. Yeah. <laughs> I actually want to clarify something. Um, I think when Israelis focus on Hamas this much and think of the religiosity or that Hamas is a religious movement and talking about the issue of Islam, it's to me in a way saying that the Israelis are thinking that the issue is about anti-Semitism. It's about religion and it's about hatred that's in uh, in faith or in, in ideology and uh, and that's a religious ideology and that's not only the problem. Now, I think that there is a problem with the Islamist movements and that's not only in Palestine, but across the Arab and the Muslim world. And that had an impact in Palestine, it had impact in the Arab world and it had impact on in the entire world. And, but to basically think about it only this way is a bit misleading because at the end of the day, Hamas is an Islamic and national movement. It's a Palestinian movement. And it's basically saying that against the PLO, the PLO actually took the path of diplomacy in the in the 90s and they chose diplomacy over violence and international law and that's what will bring Palestinian freedom and liberation and unfortunately they failed to achieve that until now and Hamas is saying that only with us uh, as, as Palestinian nation rising up and fighting for our freedom there will be no freedom and from my experience in the last seven years at Roots and also outside of Roots, meeting Israelis and getting to know the Israeli society, um, I have met a few Israelis who actually have heard a Palestinian and have understood what the Palestinian cause or what the Palestinian uh, uh, nationalist struggle is. And to be fair, I, I do understand sometimes it's confusing because before the Oslo peace process, we, the Palestinians, we were saying that, you know, the Israelis have no uh, connection to this land. The Zionist movement was a European uh, colonial movement. They brought Jews from Europe. They colonized our land. They have no home. They have no place in our land. And we want to take back our land from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. That's what the Palestinian liberation uh, movement and the liberation vision was before the Oslo agreement, right? But then there was the Oslo Agreement and the vision for the two-state solution. And it, it made a shift, uh, whether we like it or not on the Palestinian side, it made some shift. And we start to think about our, uh, to have a state, not on all of the historic land of Palestine, but on parts of it. So uh, there are organizations and individuals on the Israeli side who do understand this part of the Palestinian struggle. They even actually advocate for it. And they even, uh, 
They even uh, join forces sometimes with Palestinians in resisting the occupation. But most of the Israeli public is actually ignorant about what the occupation is. They think it's just Israeli forces keeping security uh, in the in the West Bank and uh, and in, in East Jerusalem, and uh, that, as I said before, Palestinian leadership uh, have rejected offers for peace that Israel gave, like all the time, generous offers for peace, and uh, so that there is no there is no there is no maybe cause or there is not nothing logical on the Palestinian side. Um, when they are actually doing what they are doing. Uh, and I know that there is also very problematic. I have a, being a member of, of, a, of, a, of an organization that's actually taking nonviolence as a, as a, uh, a very essential uh, principle, like a very important principle uh, that we are trying to change this reality in nonviolent ways. And the concept of militant resistance or the concept that Hamas is following that actually we are fighting for, in their eyes, they are fighting for peace because they are fighting for the liberation at the end. Um, now, of course, we can talk also specifically about Hamas itself and what's their vision of, of, uh, of a Palestinian state and what's their vision to the land. Because Hamas, even though they have accepted in 2015 the concept of a Palestinian state uh, in consideration or within within the international uh, resolutions and in the 1967 lines, but they say that they will not they will never recognize Israel and uh, uh, yeah it's it's I don't think that um, yeah I think I think that um, there is there is a there is a there is a problem when we come to talk about uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, if we talk about it on, if it's only like if people use it as the, the explanation for what's uh, what's going on, and for sure I would say that in my experience, because I was I'm in the Palestinian society and I was in uh, also in the Israeli society, for sure there is hatred for the other side. I mean, if you come from outside, you can see immediately, maybe you can sense this uh, level of racism between both sides, the hatred. But in the eyes of the people here, it's a hatred of the enemy. Uh, I can tell you that for sure, like uh, after learning about anti-Semitism, you can see there is anti-Semitism within a Palestinian society. When you actually go, I was once in a settlement in the West Bank and there was a bookshop and I went to the bookshop and many of the books that I saw there on the shelf was, a, was actually spreading Islamophobia, was Islamophobic. And, there is also racism on the, on the Israeli Jewish side towards Arabs and towards uh, towards Muslims. So, but that is this hatred that exists here is because it's hatred between enemies. Um, it's part of the problem, but it's not uh, the roots of the of the problem. I want to ask uh, a bit of, of I mean, of course, where this hate comes from. It makes sense, especially with the history. But when you're having dialogues like intergenerationally, like if you speak with your grandparents or great-grandparents or people who either witnessed the Holocaust or experienced it, and then for the Palestinian side, it was the Nakba. people who experienced this as well. Like, um, this is deeply rooted within the history and especially dealing with the land, like people have deep roots here. Um, how does the conversation with like grandparents and family members who have experienced this trauma influence kind of the way that you view life nowadays and have these conversations within your peers 
I'll tell you that <clears throat> the Holocaust is central to Jewish identity around the world, and it's super central to Jewish identity in the state of Israel. And it's not just the Holocaust, it's actually almost 2,000 years of anti-Semitism that Jews remember whether we're talking about the Crusades in which thousands of Jews were slaughtered by the Crusader armies on the way to the Holy Land, whether we're talking about the expulsion from Spain in 1492 or from three or four other European countries right after that, whether we're talking about the Chalmitsky massacres and the pogroms in the 19th and early 20th centuries in Eastern Europe, Jews literally live with the fears and the traumas of, of those events of, of almost two millennia. It's not always conscience, conscious, excuse me, but it's really in our in our bones and in our DNA. There's a sense, and I hinted to this a little bit earlier, of uh, deep insecurity, that there's always an enemy around the, around the corner, and that we created the state of Israel in order to provide ourselves with a certain degree of security. That we won't go to like sheep sheep to the slaughter. That we won't be completely vulnerable. Actually, there's a a saying that we Jews have that we say at the Passover seder, the Passover celebration, uh, and in English it goes like this: In every generation, they stand against us to annihilate us, but God has saved us. And it's become a very popular song. It's on the radio all the time in Israel. And uh, it's a statement also made by the Prime Minister Netanyahu many, many times. And I'll, I'll tell you that uh, we in Israeli education, Jewish Israeli education, we reinforce this trauma through, among other things, Holocaust education. It's one of the central elements of... Uh, high school education Israel for Jewish kids. And uh, the center of Holocaust education is March of the Living, in which just about every Israeli Jewish high school student spends a week in Eastern Europe in the remains of the concentration camps and the death camps. So it's seen in our consciousness. I want to tell you a story. <clears throat> uh, Two of our Palestinian partners in Roots told me the same thing. These two Palestinians, I won't mention their names, did a very brave thing. In different frameworks, they went themselves on a version of March of the Living. They went to the death camps in Germany and in Poland to try and experience or understand what the Jews feel in their consciousness about the Holocaust. And these two Palestinians told me that when they went to the death camps with some other Palestinians and internationals, there were uh, many, many Israeli high school groups uh, around them while they were there visiting the camps. And one of the Palestinians knows Hebrew. And he said to me, Hanan, I heard what was being told to the high school kids. There are often army officers that accompany the Israeli kids to the death camps and the army officers were saying, so my person's friend said to me that we created the state of Israel 
and we have the strong Israeli army to make sure that this doesn't happen again, never again, that we won't go by sheep to the slaughter. And my Palestinian friend said to me, at that moment I understood that in the eyes of the Israeli kids, I, my friend, the Palestinian, I am the present reincarnation of the Nazis. The Israeli army expends its power and its energy to make sure that I, Palestinian from Bethlehem, don't do to the Jews what the Germans and Nazis did to them. And my Palestinian friend said, I then understood this conflict between Israel and Palestine. Part of the conflict, I'm not saying the whole thing, a small part of the conflict, one element of the conflict is that Jews are traumatized and afraid. We can't trust the Palestinians because we see in the Palestinians another version of the Nazis, another version of the Russian Cossacks, another version of the Inquisition, another version of the expulsion from Spain. We expect it to happen, so we have to be strong against it, and we can't trust them. We can't trust them. And this is this comes from grandparents, but it's not just from grandparents. It's a small part of it. It's it's a major element of Jewish-Israeli uh, consciousness. I have a Jewish education educator who told me uh, that once the following: It's hard not to be paranoid when everyone's against you. In other words, it sounds like paranoia, but it's true, or at least that's the Jewish experience that it's true. So how do we make peace? How do we trust? How do we go into peace agreements with this deep, 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 deep trauma? Yeah, so on the uh, on the Palestinian side, um... The Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948, is is something that we still feel like we are even living until now, and we are living the impact of it uh, until now. Um, the Nakba for us is that this point at history in where we were supposed to become a nation, we were supposed to become, uh, we were supposed to have a our independence, we were supposed to have our state and be sovereign and. We lost all that and we lost most of our lands and we became refugees in other countries, even in Arab countries around us. We are refugees and we are treated as refugees. And for example, in this war, I will share with you a story. Uh, when Israel, when the Israeli army asked uh, the people in the north to, uh, to actually leave the north of the Gaza Strip and move to the south, and they were bombing, which actually was very difficult to move almost 1.1 million people from that area to the, to the south. And there is nowhere to go. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my friends actually, he said, I asked him like, you know, the, the, the bombing was really intense and was really scary. I, I was watching every night on the news channels and um, I was like thinking if I was there, I mean, it's, it was like really scary. You don't know. It, it, you might, your house might, your house might get bombed and you are inside. And then the, the entire building will fall upon uh, on, on you. So I asked this family, like my friend, why you don't leave? And they said, and they, and they live actually in the center of Gaza. And there was bombing near the area. And they said, like, to leave where exactly? Where to go? We have nothing in the south. We have no relatives, no friends. We have no not, not, nothing there. We are going to stay in the outside. We are going to sleep in the streets. 
And so I, I, one of the stories that happened, for example, is that when some people were evacuating, going to the, to the south, there were many, of, uh, many, many families. Uh, there were like children, women, and, uh, and there, were, there, were, uh, there were elderies and people from uh, people who actually have lived and experienced uh, 1948. And uh, in the Palestinian side, it felt again like after 70, 75 years, the same people are experiencing on the same land, they are experiencing uh, an exile and displacement again. And they are they are they are becoming refugees, uh, um, and and actually, I uh, I actually rem uh, remember one of these uh, conversations in where like there was young uh, woman she said like I always blamed my grandparents for leaving Jaffa why they had to leave they should have stayed there and uh, they were too afraid and they just left and we lost our home there but she said now after we what we experienced in Gaza. Now I understand why they left. Um, because if they didn't lift, probably I wouldn't be I wouldn't be alive. And uh, as I said before, uh, in a previous answer, uh, the Palestinians uh, had have a lot of suspicion about this war and what's really the purpose and the intent behind it. And as I said before, like even if if we left to like Egypt or the Palestinians in Gaza left to Egypt, they would not be allowed to come back. And if this will be a second Nakba, a second catastrophe. So we spoke a lot about what's happening right now, but what is your hope for your country in the future? Do you have a specific vision in mind for what peace would look like or, or what a resolution would be? No. Yeah, um, I mean, like, I'm thinking about this all the time because I feel like this is what I, this is what I can uh, as as an activist and and working in peace. This is what I can, this is what my mind is all the time busy about. I in, we had several wars between Hamas and Israel before, and uh, each war have ended with a ceasefire, and we go back again to some sort of like a uh, an unwritten agreement between both sides. Uh, and we go back to the managing of the conflict. I think this war should end with a political agreement. This one should end with a political agreement, uh, political agreement that will end the conflict between the Israeli and the Palestinian side. And uh, my hope for that to happen is that there will be, uh, that even though this is very difficult on my side, over 16,000 people were killed, uh, over 30,000 people were injured so far, and uh, there are many, many atrocities. And for some or for many people, it doesn't matter. Like people lost their house, their homes, their, uh, their families, their fathers and mothers and their children. And there are children who lost their families. And actually, there were so many casualties in this war. And there were so many children who were left with no parents that now people are starting to talk about actually a adoption. Like, because there are so many, so many kids in Gaza without, without parents. Um, and, and this is like really a big thing in the Palestinian society. So I hope that, um, first of all, that we start to think that we need to take responsibility. And by we, I mean the people, both Israelis and Palestinians, and not just leave it for the, for the leadership. And that somehow something will happen on the Israeli society, on the Israeli side, that will change this leadership. Because I think that the 
leadership in Israel right now is not the leadership that's known to lead peace. And you can say the same thing about the leadership on the Palestinian side. I think it must be changed. Um, I think we need uh, we need a lot of reform and uh, uh, a lot of work to do also on the Palestinian side on the Palestinian leadership. Uh, I hope also that the uh, which is like it's really hard for me to say that, but this is what I hope and I wish for. But the 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 way how many countries are involved in our conflict uh, is basically for their own benefit, of course, and. In a way, it's deflaming the conflict. And instead of actually de-escalating it, and it's instead of leading to a peace agreement, it's using the conflict and inflaming it. Um, and 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 at the end, the people here, the innocent people, are, are dying, and uh, innocent people are, be are being killed. Um, my hope is that there will be some change in the U.S. politics toward Israel and Palestine, and there will be more seriousness. In, in becoming a a, a, a a serious and fair peace mediator. Um, I think that we need uh, someone from outside to help us. I don't think that right now the Israelis and Palestinians can on our own achieve an agreement. And I think that any agreement would require hard concessions on both sides. But if we want to have a better future and if we want to save more lives, we have to do it. Uh, it's not about land. It's, it's never about the land itself, it's about identity and recognition. I think there is a way for us to, uh, for us to move forward. Uh, we were able to do it at Roots for the last nine years. We have created this model and there are other models. Uh, if you wanna search for the Israeli-Palestinian uh, groups and joint spaces that uh, created some, even focused on creating political models, um, and actually making creative solutions and some work on the ground uh, on the ground level like us like like hoods uh, and so this is this is my hope um, I hope that there will be a political process that there will be a role for us uh, that we were we will be able to make reform on each side and to come up with a, with a new leadership that will uh, fight for peace. I'll just add to what Noor said. I agree with everything he said. That in order to be uh, to reach a peaceful solution, each side has to recognize the humanity of the other side, the identity of the other side, the legitimacy of the other side, and the other side's belonging to the land from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea is historical Palestine. From the river to the sea is historical Israel, the land of Israel. Both sides belong to the same land. You could say that Mother Earth, the land between the river and the sea, has two children, the Israelis and the Palestinians. <clears throat> we both belong to her. We have to find a way to live together through recognition of the other side's belonging, just as I belong, they belong. Which means there has to be, to some degree, Palestinian sovereignty, just like there's Jewish sovereignty, there has to be Palestinian sovereignty. It could be in the framework of one state that's divided into different federal unions, like the United States. And on the other hand, Noor and I uh, tend to go in the direction of a modified two-state solution in which Palestine is a completely independent sovereign state, but it's not separate from Israel, it's intertwined with Israel by a confederation, not a federation, but a confederation something like the european union 
You have independent Israel, it's independent Palestine, but they're part of a larger union and a confederation. And in addition to the organs of confederation, there are two, let's say, lower levels of intertwining between the two states. Number one, open borders. Number two, open residency. Open borders mean you can move from one side to the other, Israelis and Palestinians. And open residency means that you can have citizenship in one country and live your whole life as a resident of the other country. Palestinians can have Palestinian citizenship, whether they're born in Ramallah or born in Los Angeles or in Paris, can get Palestinian citizenship and then live their whole life, not just in Palestine, but they can live their whole life in Israel, not getting Israeli citizenship, Palestinian citizenship and Israeli residency. And Israeli can uh, be born in the country or come from New York or Paris and get Israeli citizenship, I mean a Jew, and then live their whole life in Israel or live their whole life in Palestine with Israeli citizenship but Palestinian residency. And uh, the reason this solution appeals to me, I think same thing for Noor, is because it satisfies two conflicting needs of both sides. What I mean is both sides want their own state and both sides want the whole land from the river to the sea. And you can't give both of those things to both sides as a contradiction. But what we just said, the confederated solution gives both sides their state and gives both sides enough of a connection to the land between the river and sea that's not part of their state, enough of a connection, so they feel that their identity, their historical homeland, has not been taken from them. Uh, this plan is called Two States, One Homeland, and it's advocated by a political movement called A Land for All that works in Israel and in Palestine. They also have a, uh, a friends movement in the US. And of course, to create such a peace settlement, you need recognition and you need trust. And that goes back to the grassroots work of roots to bring the two sides together. Wow, thank you both for coming and for giving this dialogue. Um, this is also the first time I feel like I've heard of this solution. Um, all, we always hear about like the two states and what the difference of that could be. And maybe one person takes this land, one person takes that land. But this is a completely new um, concept to me. Um, so we always think it's really important for um, our audience to at least get the last idea or the first idea that comes to your to your mind. But the last thing you want to leave them with um, for this episode and just for the future. So we'll say a brief sentence, like take a deep breath. And then each of you can say one statement that you want to leave the audience with. I think that we need solidarity between human between humans. Mm. Thank you. Don't choose a side. Choose both sides. The recording has stopped.